We're dealing with a verse that many of us, most of us, should know and have memorized. If you're surprised to see me up here this morning, uh, join the group. I'm surprised to be up here too. Uh, Nancy and Peter were not the only ones hit with the plague. Steve was also hit with the plague. Uh, And so pray for him. He starts teaching at Heritage this week. So keep him in your prayers as he's hopefully recovering at home this morning. Um, So this morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. And the reason we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 is because if you do any sort of reading plan, if you have any sort of New Year's resolution when it comes to reading the Bible, where do you start? Genesis. And so I started my new reading plan January 1st, and I started reading in Genesis, and so Genesis is what we have this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's a short verse. It's only seven letters in the Hebrew language. It's very short, very simple, and for many of us, we've heard it before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We've all heard that before. We all know it. We've all, if we've, most people who've never read the Bible before, even if they find the Gideon Bible in the hotel nightstand, they open it up to the first page, and these are the words that they read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What we're going to do this morning is uh, something slightly cool, I hope. Um, As I was reading and studying through Genesis, um, I, I found out that there was seven Hebrew words in this verse. I'm not going to try to pronounce them for you. I don't have them memorized, and I couldn't even pretend to pronounce them properly. But a couple of studies that I found were seven Hebrew words And let's find seven key truths that we can find just in this verse alone. Seven key truths that are founded and based in Genesis 1, chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 1. But before we look at those seven key truths, let's just bow our heads for a moment. Let's ask the Lord to open his word to us. Father, we all come from different homes, different places, different walks of life. We all have different stresses, different struggles, different anxieties, different things to praise you for, different things to get excited about. We all have different families. We all have different jobs. But you are the same God. You do not change. And you are the one thing that we all have in common. We thank you that you love us and that you care for us. We pray that this morning, as we look at these words that we've heard and seen before, that you would show us some new things about yourself. Help us to love you more. Help us to cherish Jesus more deeply. Change us into his likeness. Help us to be more like him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So these seven truths that we're going to look at are not new. They're not uh, big in any way. They're not... um, going to be anything you haven't heard before. And for many of them, you could think, well, why didn't you just lump that in with the other one? Or why didn't you make another category for that one? And it's simply because I wanted to stick with seven. So some of these you could lump together. Some of these you could squish together. Some of these you could pull apart and say, well, that's actually a second, third, or fourth point. And quite frankly, we're looking at seven key truths. There are many, many more truths that we could pull out of Genesis 1, chapter 1. These are the ones that I found, though. And the first one is this. Simply... God exists. When you read Genesis 1, verse 1, you can't read it without acknowledging the existence of God. 
He just simply is. He's there. And he's not put up for debate. You're not invited to consider the evidence as to whether God exists or not. He just exists. He's just there. He is. Humanity is not in the position of evaluating whether God is real or not. The Bible doesn't give us that luxury. God is real, he exists, and he does things. Now, in our day and age, in our culture, that, doesn't, that isn't what people want to hear. The people don't want to believe that God exists. People don't want to believe that he's real. People don't want to believe that they are accountable to a, to a God bigger than themselves. They want to be only accountable to themselves. They want to be a God unto themselves. But that's not what the Bible says. In the first words of Scripture, we read that God exists. And it's not just assumed that you accept that or recognize that. It demands that you accept that. It demands that you accept that God exists, that God is real. And he's not an object that you can evaluate. We debate the existence of God in the public sphere, right? We as Christians, we put our best forward and the atheists put their best forward and we go at it head to head and we see who can come out on top. Who has the greater evidence for the existence of God? And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't evaluate all of the evidence, all of the external visual evidence that we see, the empirical evidence to come to the existence of God. But the Bible itself does not say, evaluate. God exists. You must accept that fact. The second key truth that we must accept, that we must see, is God existed before the universe, and he's going to exist after the universe is gone. He existed before the world was created, and he's going to exist after it is gone. He's eternal. Flip with me in your Bibles to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. There's some in the pews there in front of you if you didn't bring your Bible with you. Psalm 102. The psalmist writes a rather lengthy hymn, a rather lengthy song about who God is. And we pick up in verse 25 of Psalm 102. In the beginning, there's our phrase from Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them and they will be discarded, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. No beginning, no end. That's our God. That's who we gather and worship of today. No beginning, no end, creator of the universe. It's interesting how the psalmist actually describes the creation of the world, because when we continue reading in Genesis 1, how does he create? He speaks. And yet, in verse 25 of Psalm 102, the heavens are the work of your hands. Now, that's not contradicting each other. It's giving us another visual of how God created. Yes, he spoke and created the world, and yet it's something that is finely crafted. It's not just thrown together. There was a process that was involved in God's creation. It was thoughtful. It was well put together, well crafted, handcrafted. There's always something to be said about something that's handcrafted and not machine made, right? 
That, that's why the handcrafted stuff is more valuable. That's why it costs more. My cousin, he lives out in BC, and he just got a job recently making tables, handcrafted dining room tables. You know what they go for? You know what the cheapest one is? 5000 bucks. I said, Brad, I love you, man, but I'm never buying anything from you. <laughs> 5000 bucks because it's handcrafted, because they go over it with their hand tools, because they make sure that every piece is well-crafted and well-put together. The Ikea ones are 20 bucks, right? <laughs> because they're machine-made. Now, of course, there's different wood, different materials. There's all sorts of different complexities that go into that. But the handcrafted part of it puts value on it. The Lord crafted with his hands the heavens and the earth. They will perish, but you remain. And then another illustration. They will all wear out like a garment. Now, depending on your age, the younger you are, the faster garments seem to wear out, right? Because you're, as a kid, you're crawling around on your knees, you're falling down all over the place, you're sliding down the stairs when you're not supposed to, and you're ripping buttons off and tearing clothes. But like garments that wear out, they will be discarded, folded up, put away. That's this. That's the earth. That just gets put away just, just like an old pair of socks. Just like an old pair. So it's handcrafted, it's valuable, and yet, in another way, it's almost worth nothing. But God remains. You remain the same. Now, when we think of remaining the same, we, we often think of it in a negative sense, right? Well, we haven't changed in 40 years. If your marriage hasn't changed in 40 years, you're probably in trouble, right? It, but we like staying and doing the same stuff. We like going to the same restaurants because we like them. We like the food there. We stay the same. We stay the course. And yet, change is good. We don't always like it, but change is good. It's good to get an oil change. It's good to change the tires. It's good to change the sheets, you know. Change is good, but God remains the same because there's nothing in God that needs to change. We need to change the sheets because they get dirty. We need to change the oil because it goes bad. There is nothing that ever goes bad in God, so he never changes. He always stays the same. God never changes. He will remain the same. He existed before the universe, and he's going to exist after it. He exists by himself. He exists. His existence is self-existence, something that we don't comprehend or understand fully. I exist because of my parents. They exist because of their parents. Everyone exists because of something else. We are all dependent on our existence because of something else, because of somebody else. Not true with God. He is self-existing. Pop quiz. Does anybody know what the Latin word for that is? It's a technical term that we use for self-existence, the self-existence of God. Anybody? That's it. Ten points for this group over here. Aseity. Aseity. Existing in and of himself. There's a new word for the year, okay? Aseity. God is self-existing. Existing, yes, and existing before the universe and long after we're gone, long after we're folded up like an old garment and put aside. Key truth number three. This is one that I think we as Christians, um, not intentionally, but we sometimes forget. God is the main character of the Bible. 
We are not. Now, there are things in the Bible that are for us. It is written for God's people. It is written so we can know him, so we can know his laws, so we can know what he wants. It's written so that we can know history. It's written so we can know what works and what doesn't. It's written for us, and yet we are not the main character. God is. In the opening words of Scripture, God is introduced to us. And throughout Scripture, God is the one that does more than anyone else, than any other character in the Bible. God is the most important person in the Bible. He's the main character. He's the first being mentioned in Genesis 1.1, and he's the last one mentioned in Revelation. If you take Revelation as a whole, what is Revelation about? God wins. Jesus is coming back. He's at the beginning and he's at the end, and everything in the middle is all about him, not about you. That's hard. That's rough, and we don't always like to hear it, especially in our current age, in our current culture, where everything is supposed to be about you. You're supposed to be allowed to define who you are and what you do. You're supposed to be able to define things that God defines, not us, like sexuality and morality. God defines those things, not us, and yet that's what we want to do. We want to be a God unto ourselves, and we want to be the one who it's all about. God is the subject of more verbs than anyone else in the Scriptures. That is, even though humanity is throughout all of Scripture, and it is written for humanity, for our benefit, and for our good, God is the one who's doing the most. Which should tell us something about what we do. We work and we act only because God has worked and act. Only because God is doing things. God is the main character of the Bible. Not me and not you. And that's actually a good thing. That can be offensive to some people. You're not all that. You're not all that important. Just relax, right? It's not all about you. We don't like hearing it, but that's actually good because we're wishy-washy, right? When we go back to God remains the same because nothing ever goes wrong with him, nothing's ever wrong that needs to be changed in God, there's a ton wrong with us. And I don't just mean us personally, just in general. You don't have to look very far to see how messed up humanity is. And it's not about us. It's about what God is doing. It's about what he is doing and acting and working in changing humanity, in changing his people, in bringing redemption. Key truth number four. God does what no human can ever do. God does what no human can ever do. He creates and the word here, this is a Hebrew word, so I'm going to try my Hebrew pronunciation. Barach, does that sound, does that sound right for anybody else know how to pronounce Hebrew? Nobody's sticking up their hand, good. So that's how you pronounce it. Barach. Create. God creates. He creates by speaking, and he creates something that does not exist prior to him speaking and creating. But that word is nowhere in Scripture used to describe anything a human does. Humanity creates, create a lot of trouble, create problems. We, we even create more humans, right? We procreate. There are things that we do that can be defined in our English terminology as creation. We create buildings. The Tower of Babel was created, but it's not the same word. The Ark was created, but not the same word. Only God does whatever this word means, and I don't understand half of what this word means, because I don't understand all of what Hebrew means. 
But whatever this means, it's unique to God. Only God does this. And he makes everything that is not God. So only God existed before creation. He will exist long after it's gone. And everything that's created by his word is not God. Which means you are not God. As much as you want to be, and as much as we'd like to think that we can be our own gods, we are not God. Trees are not God. The sun is not God. We can knock a lot of things just, we can just check them right off the list. Not God. Why? Because they were created. Anything that was created can, yes, have value because it's handcrafted by God, but it's not worth our worship. We, we just got through Christmas, right? We just got a bunch of new stuff. And quite frankly, useless stuff, right? And I'm not trying to be insulting, but you could live without everything you got this year, right? Like if you were honest, there were some things that were probably very, very helpful, very, very cool, very, very neat. Something that maybe you wanted for a really long time. Maybe it's even an outdated model. It's five years old. You could have lived without it. It's not worthy of your worship. It's just a thing. God is worthy of your worship. And he creates. And he's good at it. That's one of the the recurring words in Genesis 1, right? And God saw that it was good. Then you get to the last one. And God saw that it was very good. God's good at what he does. We get excited when we, well, we. I get excited when I see those well-handcrafted tables. I think it's just so, I get excited watching Thomas work. Seeing what he can create and put together as, as a stonemason, what he does with his hands and what comes out at the end of the, the time put in, it's incredible. But God is just so much better at his job than we are at ours. And I think it's okay and right to acknowledge that what God creates is good. Now we're, we make a mess of all sorts of things. But God's good at creating, and he's good at fixing. And he creates more than we can see. We're told in Genesis 1, verse 1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it kind of expands on in the following verses. What does that mean? What is being created? Well, he creates the the space. He creates the, the place, and then he creates the things to fill the places with. But in Genesis 1, 1, there's other things that we can We can think through and figure out that God actually created as well. In the beginning, what does that tell us that God also created? Well, the beginning. Well, I heard somebody said over here. Time. That's right. You can't have a beginning if time does not exist. And time did not exist because God exists outside of time. And so in order for there to to be a beginning of the earth, he also creates time itself. He creates time and then he creates the stuff. And I don't know when and how all of that goes together. Did God create time first and then the place, or the place and then the time? I don't know. It doesn't matter. He did a good job of it, though. (laughs) And maybe it's helpful to work through the process, right? God, how did you do this? God, how? 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 (laughs) And yet, as helpful as it is to think through these things, recognize you may not get it. 
You won't get it. Because, as point number five, key truth number five is, God is bigger than we think. So keep on thinking about him. He's bigger than you think. He's bigger than you can comprehend and ever imagine. So press on. Keep going. Because the well will never run dry. We think of, sometimes improperly, God is bigger than we think, so we may as well give up. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. Why even bother walking? This is the wrong way of viewing God. God is the well that never runs dry. You can always go back to God, bring up another bottle of water, and drink deeply. There's always going to be more. There, was, there will always be a refreshing cup from God. He's worth thinking about. He's mysterious, but not mystical. Not abstract. Not He's complex, but not complicated. He's far above anything you can understand, and yet understandable. That in and of itself, the fact that you understand that you, you can't know everything about God, and yet you can know God personally, that's incredible. That's how big of a God He is. He can somehow be so far above you, and so intimate with you. That's the God that we worship. There's only one of Him. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. What does that say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet, in Genesis 1, there's complexity to His oneness. Genesis 1 26. Let us make man in our own image. What's going on there? Well, is, is there a reference to the triune nature of God, perhaps? Probably. And as you read through the rest of Scripture, we see that God is not a one-trick pony, right? He's one being, three persons. You'll be pleased to know, parents, that a few weeks ago I overheard Thomas teaching our kids in the back room. And I heard them yelling something, and I thought they were just yelling at him. And so at the end of the service, I walked in, and he said, did you hear what I had them saying? I said, no. He's like, I had them all yelling, one being, three persons, one being, three persons. Like, wow, that's great. <laughs> it's better them yelling that than something else. <laughs> he's complex, but he's knowable. He's bigger than we think, but he's worth thinking about. And he's worth thinking about, he's worth pursuing, because as key number, truth number six says, God is not silent. He speaks. And if God did not speak, one, the world would not exist. And two, you wouldn't be able to know who he is. Because he is that big. The only way we know who God is, and the only way we can come to know him personally in a relationship, is because he actually talks to us. You're not smart enough to figure that out on your own. You're not intelligent enough to figure out who God is and how to fix things. So God speaks. Now, I'm not trying to put you down. That just shows us the graciousness of our God. He looks at us and he goes, Oh my goodness, you sorry lot. You're not going to get anything done here. Let me help you. He creates by speaking. And he speaks so that we can know who he is. Who he is in his being who he is in his character, in his nature, and also so that we can know his desires, what he wants for us and from us, so that we can know how to live, how to walk daily, how to trust him. 
how to work out the things in our lives that we don't want there. God speaks so that we can live. Key truth number seven. God does not depend on anything or anyone, but we do. Nothing sustains him, nothing keeps him together, nothing keeps him ticking. God is self-existing, has always been self-existing, and will always be self-existing. But you and I are not. The world is not. God is so big that he does not depend on anything, but we do. He sustains all things by his powerful word. If you showed up this morning expecting Steve to start preaching Hebrews chapter 1, that's what we would have heard. He sustains all things by his powerful word. So he he creates by speaking. He lets us know what's going on by speaking. And he keeps all of this working by his word. Which tells us God's word is pretty powerful. It's worth paying attention to. It's very strange for us to think. And, And some... I've heard illustrations of, you know, some, some generals or some kings having a powerful word they can speak and things happen, but not like God. There's an example, I don't know if it's true, of um, Alexander the Great. He comes up to a, a city that's kind of on the side of a cliff and he shows up with, I think it was 10 soldiers to mount an attack against uh, this city. And, you know, he knocks on the gate and he says, I'm here for your surrender. And they look outside and they go, you've got to be kidding me. There's you and ten guys and we've got a full army in here. What are you talking about? And then he told his soldiers one by one to start walking off the cliff. And one by one they walked off the cliff. And by like the fourth one, the city surrendered. I, the first time I heard that, I'm like, what in the world does this mean? And then... Slowly reading a little bit more, you figure out the city realized that if this man, Alexander the Great, could tell men to not even in battle, just walk off a cliff to give their lives because of this man's word, nothing was going to stop him. Our city will be destroyed before this man gives up. We may as well surrender. That's a powerful word. I don't know if it's a true story. God has a more powerful word. He spoke and created, and he speaks into our lives and does miracles. He changes us. He speaks by his spirit and opens up our hearts and our minds to the truth of the gospel. He does something that no other human can do. He creates purification for sin. In the beginning, God creates. He creates man, then law when man sins, then a new covenant. Because the old covenant proved to be worthless. Not because God made a defective covenant, but because the covenant he created was specifically designed to show us how sinful we were and how bad we are at fixing things ourselves. So he creates a new one. He creates purification for sins. He creates life out of death. He creates a way, not back to the garden, which is what is created in Genesis 1-3. through He creates a way into something far better than the garden. Sometimes, and I've seen titles of books, Getting Back to the Garden of Eden. 
brothers and sisters, we're not going back to the garden. We're going to something way better than that. We're going to the kingdom, the eternal heavenly kingdom of God. Is there going to be trees there? Is there going to be plants? Sure, I don't know if you want, but God will be there all the time. The kingdom of heaven is where we are going, much better than the garden. What we destroyed in Genesis 1 through 3, God can create something so much better than we could ever imagine. So yes, think about what heaven will be like. Think about what it'll be like to walk with him daily. Think about what it'll be like for there to not be a sun, but that there's just no darkness because Jesus is there. Think about that. As we go throughout our, our new year, whether you've got uh, a Bible reading plan resolution or not, as you pick up your Bible this year, think about God. Think about who he is and who he's revealed himself to be. Yes, think about who you are, but recognize you're not the main point of why we open this Bible. But if you open it looking to find out more about who God is, he will change you. He will conform you into the image of his son. He will change you into his likeness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at the end, he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. We get to celebrate the beginnings of that in communion. We get to celebrate the purification that he created for us. We get to celebrate and enjoy what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Now, you know when we come to the table, we always reflect, we pause, we pray, we give thanks. That's good, and that's right, and I'm not looking to change that. But it's called a celebration, right? It's called an exciting time of remembrance, Because yes, we remember the incredible sacrifice of our Lord and Savior. But we're celebrating what we have in Him. So I'm not saying you let out a whoop whoop after we're done. But it's okay to actually just be excited about what He's done for us. To smile. To get excited. To not just sing songs, yeah, but to feel an overwhelming sense of joy because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We're going to celebrate and remember our Lord and Savior in communion at this time. I'm going to ask the gentlemen who are helping us to come forward and just take a moment, a quiet time, to prepare your hearts as we come to the table, and then I will lead us in prayer. None of us deserve your grace. None of us deserve your mercy. And yet you have given it to us. So we're grateful. We're thankful, grateful, joyous, excited. Thank you for Jesus. We pray that you would help us, not just today, this week, this month, but this entire year, for the rest of our lives, Lord. Help us to grow in thankfulness. Help us to grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. 
It's in his name that we pray. Amen. How great you are, Lord. We pray and ask that you would help us to make that our prayer this year. How great you are. Help us to praise you for who you are and for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.